everybody. Welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast and our weekly conversation. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Alexis. My name is Dan. So glad, so honored, so humbled that you'd let us in your headspace here for 45 minutes or so. Over the years, we have observed in our own lives and in the lives of others different ways of experiencing life, what life throws at us. Lex, over the years, what are some of the things that we have observed in others and in ourselves in how we deal with life? I know for myself, I, for the most part, for a big chunk of my life, have approached experiences, hardship, even wonderful, um, utterly joy, life-giving experiences. I just always kind of tend to have like this steady cautious, uh, take it internally, let it roll around and just kind of sit on it be like, this is great. If it's a great thing or if it's a really negative thing, it's like, this feels bad, but I'm staying steady. I'm staying steady. (laughs) Textbook Enneagram nine. I'm textbook Enneagram eight. I experience life pretty much like a roller coaster that's gone off the rails. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's, uh, just like a little thing. Uh, you know, I messed up the Chemex and the coffee the, the morning, uh, that morning, and uh, oh man, I'm tailspun into a depressive state until the following morning when I can get the stupid coffee right. You have um, high highs and low lows, yeah. and I'm just always kind of dipping in between that, like very <laughs> mildly. <laughs> and so it goes with all of you. Uh, each of us interpret the world around us and experience the world around us in an assortment of ways. We are such a complex tapestry of experience, emotion, thought, interpretation, application, response, process. All of these things uh, creates this kaleidoscopic event called human experience. And we want to talk today about different mentalities and the way that we approach interpreting, applying, responding to the life that we're living right now, uh, which is a unique moment in time for us with the COVID pandemic, but beyond the pandemic, beyond quarantine, just everyday life, the stuff that gets thrown at us, the stuff that gets given to us, the mentalities that we observe and view and filter the world through. So I started reading uh, an author named Gerald May, He was a medical doctor turned psychiatrist and a devout follower of Jesus. Uh, A lot of what he's most known for is his helpful work um, on St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, or Avila, I don't know how you say it. Um, But he, he has applied some of the most monumental mystics thoughts into contemporary psychiatric and psychological framework. And he's a, he's a wonderful author to be reading. And in his, his somewhat larger book called Will and Spirit, where he's trying to develop what he calls a contemplative psychology, he had this really helpful chapter where he talked about some of the, the modern mentalities that have developed in the modern mind frame and how different schools of psychology have tried to operate from these mentalities. So the coping mentality, the happiness mentality, and the growth mentality. We want to talk about those just a little bit because both my wife and I find that we fall into those mentalities and ways of interpreting the world. Oftentimes, we don't just land in one of those mentalities either. 
typically were vacillating between the three of them. So, you know, when I was reading through this material, I was like, oh, wow, I'm landing in coping mentality, the happiness mentality a lot. Um, and someone else may be like, oh, I tend to live out of all three of those mentalities. And so it's, it's important to know from the beginning that we kind of vacillate between the three of them and we experience all three of them. Yeah, nothing in the human experience is uh, ever just black and white. There's always extreme nuance and a lot of complexity. And, you know, honestly, to tip our hand a little bit here at the front end of the of our conversation, these mentalities have their value. Uh, I think that they're helpful. We fall into them. But we have found a fourth mentality that aligns us a little more with a biblical way of being in the world. And as apprentices of Jesus, we're increasingly persuaded that this is actually how Jesus lived his life. So we'll get to that. Let's start with the coping mentality. The coping mentality sees all of life as a matter of just merely dealing with one stress after another. The coping mentality has this resigned attitude towards life and experience, and it says, look, Life is rough, so all I can do is manage and cope, and there's nothing else in the whole experience for me. Now, May, Gerald May, one of his clients had this incredible quote. Let me read it to you. She said to him one day, I'm tired of coping. I've been coping with one thing or another all my adult life. When I have fun, I see it as a way of coping with boredom or relaxing from stress. When my husband and I talk seriously about ourselves, we're always looking to solve the problems of our marriage. Now, I suppose there are some things which really do require coping, this woman said. If a tornado blew our house away, I'd have to cope with that. But there's something wrong when coping is all there is. I just can't believe that the world was set up as some kind of experimental laboratory where God continually puts you in one stressful situation after another just to see how well, you, how well you're going to do coping with it. <laughs> oh, man. I, I am sad to say that her mentality, actually, I have lived that way for large sections of my life. Me too. It, it's something that we fall into, you guys. Coping mentality, it's characterized by um, a feeling of always being oppressed by life. Uh, and in the coping mentality, we take on kind of a victim identity. I'm just a victim of what is happening to me in life, and all I can do is be victimized by the injustices and the struggles of life. And so we often see the world this way, and our experience of the world is this. And it brings us to a place like this woman, maybe you right now as you're listening, where you're like, get me off this hamster wheel. Mm. I, don't wanna, I don't want to just keep coping and even in my times of reprieve, view those as a mechanism of coping with the world. I love that. One of the second um, mentalities that we humans have adopted for coping um, is <laughs> this mentality is the happiness mentality. Um, so to sum up May's ideas, he says that the happiness mentality approaches life as a sort of bargaining relationship with God. And the basic assumption of this mentality is that if we live correctly, we'll be happy. If we're not happy, then obviously we're doing something wrong. It's like it's this math formula, you know, plug in A plus B equals whatever. And this type of mentality um, really has led to a toxic false belief that 
any sign of unhappiness, uh, discontent, or discouragement is like it's those things are like this definitive mark um, that something's wrong or that there's emotional or spiritual unhealth. And so it's like we get this mentality that, oh my gosh, I'm not happy. Something's wrong. There must be something wrong with me. And so rather than embracing uh, the more negative aspects of human emotion, such as sadness or hurt or pain or brokenness, um, all of which are a normal part of the human experience, uh, we spend a tremendous amount of emotional and even sometimes physical energy just pursuing happiness, but it always feels like it's eluding us. And this is where... um, the bargaining and negotiating negotiating really starts with God. We try to do right and be acceptable. And then when our emotional experience doesn't line up with that, we feel bad. And so we strive more, hoping that God will bring happiness. And on and on that cycle goes. I think in that cycle as well, sometimes we'll do something and we'll get a little dose of happiness, mm-hmm. which kind of stirs the fire. Like, okay, I'll do that more. Yep. Keep but, doing it. Keep doing but it. But then the happiness wears off and, mm-hmm. and it's like a drug addict, man. You just got to keep dosing higher and higher and higher till you, till you OD on this pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned the hamster wheel. It's exactly like that. It's like we're running nonstop, but we don't really have a true end in sight. Now, one of the greatest tragedies of this mentality is that it produces resignation um, and a deep-seated cynicism towards God. We get angry with Him. We blame Him for terrible circumstances in our lives or things that aren't going our way. Um, And so if we get to the point in our pursuit of happiness where we can't ever seem to actually attain it, then eventually we point our finger at God and we get mad. Um, And our spirituality no longer is defined by objective truths about God, like what he says about himself in scripture, how he reveals himself in scripture and creation and through humans. But we define God through our mood swings. Oh my gosh, (laughs) that is horrifying to me. But I've done it. Mm -hmm. Uh, God is an angry God when I'm in a bad mood. God is a mean God when I'm in a depressed mood. And God is amazing when I nail the Chemex. Yeah. That's crazy. It's the happiness means God loves me. Sadness means God hates me or he's against me. And so God, though, through the happiness mentality... um, suddenly takes on this like removed father figure or um, worse yet, he can take on this like idea of being a cruel puppet master, pulling strings um, and almost like dangling this carrot in front of us and we're just chasing after it and we never get it. And really, that's just a horrible way to see God and the world. And it certainly makes life devoid of any sense of true happiness, like that which you're actually longing for and desiring, it becomes devoid of that because you're not filtering things correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a lie. That's a total lie. Um, this third one, the third mentality that May brings up is a, is a fairly recent one in our culture, and it's the growth mentality. Um, this is everywhere. The growth mentality is the fundamental assumption that we as humans can achieve wholeness, we can find fulfillment by 
actualizing all of our inward potentials. We can finally find joy, satisfaction, happiness, meaning by optimizing our performance. And we can do that through the growth mentality and the schools of growth mentality have a whole buffet of ways in which we can life hack everything from self-awareness and mindfulness. Um, And those of you that know me, you know I have taken a deep dive into this world. And so cold therapy, ice baths, um, meditation, uh, um, the way that we shift our mentality in um, workouts and CrossFit. I mean, it's it's absolutely everywhere. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Uh, every time I run, I get into our ice bath that's like 35 degrees and I sit in it for two, two and a half minutes and I'm literally doing that. One, honestly, it does feel good after a long run on my knees, um, but I do it because my hope is that there's going to be growth from it, that I'm going to be able to run better, that I'm going to get faster, that my recovery is better. I honestly kind of love the ice bath. Yeah. <laughs> You know, this isn't a fitness podcast, but there is some science behind the ice bath. So I feel like we're trying to defend our ice bath practices. Uh, we really you, love you, the ice you bath, guys. You guys should try it. And it does give you, like, mental strength sitting in 35-degree water for two minutes. Anyway, we're off track. The growth mentality. You're going to see it everywhere you go right now in our culture. It's in CrossFit gyms. And coaches are like, this is an opportunity for you to grow. Don't think of this as a painful workout. Even though you're going to feel like you're going to die, you're going to grow from it. Biohacking blogs. You know, honestly, the nutrition thing that's happening right now, salvation by nutrition. So I'm saved because I'm a vegan. I'm saved because I'm paleo. I'm saved because I'm keto. I'm saved because whatever next nutrition plan is going to save humanity. These are all out of that kind of growth mentality about life. The point being, the growth mentality says we ourselves can change ourselves as these struggles around us, we embrace them rather than resisting them, and we bring growth ourselves. It, it actually, there is a lot of benefit to the growth mentality. There really is. In fact, um, May, in his chapter on this, he, he actually says the most difficult thing about the growth mentality in comparing it to a more healthy psychology is that there is so much benefit from it. And so, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones. But here's the problem. As with the coping and the happiness mentalities, the fault point in the growth mentality is what we just call and what May calls the supremacy of self. Mm. Self in the growth mentality never submits to a spirituality and to an authority above itself. And that for humans has been a problem from page one of the Bible. We try to be our own gods And the growth mentality actually um, despises the idea of submitting ourselves to something outside of ourselves because salvation comes from within ourselves. Growth mentality says, I can bend life experience around my will rather, rather than my will being bent and shaped by God. This is very subtle, uh, but it is terribly dangerous and it's ultimately defeating Because the great lie that humans have believed, as I said, from the very beginning is that we can be our own gods. And, um, you know, truth and reality is what we smack our heads up against uh, when everything comes to a head in our lives. And reality is we aren't God. We cannot self-sustain. 
we cannot biohack our way to optimal performance and eternal life. We are creatures of a creator. So maybe you're like us. We've experienced our lives uh, through all of these filters, through all of these mentalities. And to be completely honest, we have found ourselves completely discouraged at various points and in these emotional and behavioral ruts. But there's always hope, guys. Through uh, our own brokenness, through spiritual direction and mentorship and intentional practices that we've put into place in our lives, we've found a way out. That doesn't mean we have it all perfect. Doesn't mean it's all said and done. We've got it conquered. No, we're growing and we've embraced a new mentality about life and God. And this new mentality that we've embraced is a mentality of surrender and obey. And what we've discovered in that process, um, in the process, excuse me, of following Jesus, is that it's a lifelong process of letting go, releasing and surrendering, yielding to God in the midst of everything, and then obeying wholeheartedly when we receive uh, direction and assurance from time spent with him, we feel okay saying, all right, we're going to raise the white flag and we're going to yield and obey. Yeah. You know, this mentality of surrender and obey, um, you may not be ready for it. I think we need to be honest about that. In my 20s, if I was listening to this podcast and I heard my, I heard this woman on the podcast say, we've embraced a mentality of surrender and obey. I would have laughed. I would have been like, no, no, no. We don't surrender. We war. We fight. We go. We grow. We do all of the, all these things. But, you know, the hamster wheel wears you out eventually. And so just listen if you feel like this doesn't fit you right now. But my guess is at the pace that most of us keep and the stress that is thrown at us in life, you're actually at a place where adopting and practicing a surrender and obey mentality about life will be so transformative and so healing for your soul. Now, before we actually move forward, we need to address what surrender is not. I have my dear friend and mentor, Gary Brashears, in my head right now. Love you, Gary. <laughs> love you, Gary. And every time I move down this road of contemplative practice, surrender, Gary's like, no, there is activity. No, there is work to be done. No, there is effort to be put in. To which I say, amen and amen. And so, in honor of my dear friend, Gary Brashears, I want to say what surrender is not. Surrender mentality is not a Buddhist passivity, okay? We're not practicing the Eastern ideals of, uh, of the pursuit of nirvana. Uh, that is, we're not trying to surrender a sense of self or lose ourselves, and we're certainly not surrendering our own will, our own volition. This is not the, the loss of will. And this is certainly not, from our perspective, surrender is not losing your desire. It's not the emptying of your desire. In contrast, the way that we understand surrender and are defining surrender is that it, it truly is yielding to a deeper and more true sense of self. 
um, that God is forming through pain and through struggle and times of confusion. Surrender for us is actually the way in which our desires develop and become more full, more heavenly, more fully human in partnership with God. And so surrender for us is, is best expressed maybe in the story of Job, uh, where this man is thrown into complete chaos and he doesn't adopt a coping mentality. I'm just going to get through another stress in life. And he doesn't adopt a kind of fake it till you make it happiness mentality. I'm just going to try to get it right with God. In fact, Job through the entire book says, I've been doing it right. And his friends are saying, well, obviously you haven't been doing it right. And Job doesn't even adopt a growth mentality in the midst of his terrible, terrible suffering. He instead, literally at the beginning of the book, falls on his face and he surrenders to a will and to a God that is beyond his understanding, beyond his conception, uh, to a God who is in the midst of his suffering, who is more concrete and more wise than his own kind of inward interpretation of the world around him. He falls on his face and he says, naked I came, naked I'll return, and in surrender I worship. It really is summed up in that proverb that we led that guided meditation through a couple days ago on Monday, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Proverbs 3, 5 in particular. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That's surrender. And lean not on your own understanding. A couple other things that surrender is not. So important. It is not fatalistic, like this fatalistic resignation that just quits moving, that has no activity involved in it. Surrender is not the lack of resistance to evil and sin in ourselves and in the world. And so surrender is not just throwing our hands up in the air and saying, this is just the way it's going to be. I'm not going to resist injustice. I'm not going to resist my flesh. Surrender actually is what Thomas Keating called contemplative activism. I love that. Contemplative activism. Surrender is the means by which... Um, we stop resisting what's around us and trying to bend it to our will. We surrender to God's will in the midst of what's going on around us. And then from that surrendered place, from that place of rest, from that place of letting go, we are able to contemplate, that is to observe the contours of God's kingdom work in the circumstances around us. But more importantly, we're able to observe the contours of God's kingdom work in our soul and what our proper and kingdom and spirit-empowered response should be, which, of course, is summarized by the word obedience. Surrender in partnership with God results in obedience. That is the mentality that the Christian carries in this world. It's a complicated idea, but Lex and I are, I'm a thousand percent persuaded as I read the Gospels, this is how Jesus did what he did. This is how he lived his life in union with his Father by the Holy Spirit. David Benner, in his short little book um, entitled Surrender to Love, says um, that surrender and obedience are closely related. The surrender God desires begins in the heart and expresses itself in behavior. So it's not just a letting go of our willpower, um, but it 
Rather, it comes from the secure knowing that we are his loved sons and daughters. And from this place of love, we are motivated and we're compelled to live right and obediently in what we do. It literally transforms us from the inside out, affecting our outward behavior. You know, really, we would say surrender is the default posture for the Christian. Obedience to Jesus is the activity that brings fulfillment and transformation, but it always starts with surrender. I mean, the very notion of salvation from the beginning, the way that we frame it up as Protestants, is give your life to Jesus, surrender to Jesus. So from the moment we are, quote unquote, born again, as Jesus said, Mm -hmm. even to the moment of our death, death seems to be the ultimate act of surrender unto God in trust that in Jesus uh, will resurrect. Yeah, so true. Surrender and obedience are not just coping. They are responding to what is in the presence of God and illuminated by understanding his purposes through it. And it's important to note that surrender and obedience um, doesn't result in this like happiness as we would define it. It's about embracing the whole and developing a deeper foundation, not just the surface happiness, but a deeper foundation of joy. And joy goes beyond mere happiness. It's what Jesus promised to give us in the midst of struggle, but not in the absence of pain. Also, surrender and obedience um, don't rely on self for growth and transformation, but wholly rely on God's power through the scriptures and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And really at the root of surrender and obedience is love. David Benner goes on to say in Surrender to Love, only God deserves absolute surrender because only God can offer absolute dependable love. As we surrender and move forward in obedience, we do so not to cope or negotiate or grow in our own power, but as a response to this unconditional love that we've been given. And that love is most clearly seen in the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection on our behalf. Surrender starts at the foot of the cross, and obedience is fueled by the joy of the resurrection. And as with all things in life, um, surrender is a choice. You know, the, the complexity of Christian theology is that, yes, w- the Bible reveals this God who is in control. No matter which camp you come from, I don't know of any biblical theologian that looks at the text of Scripture and says, no, God's not in control of things. He, no matter what perspective you take on that, God is in control, and yet God is wholly and completely partnered with us. And so I would, I, I have quit trying to navigate my logical, rational understanding of God's providence and our part in all of that. What the text of, of Scripture gives us is humans making choices and God being involved in those choices and that our choices matter. And so surrender, just like in any other context, is a choice that we have to make. And um, my gorgeous wife and I have found a life of joy is lived 
not by a single solitary moment of surrender, (laughs) but by waking up at sunrise and surrendering. And 20 minutes later, surrendering. And after the, you know, uncomfortable phone call, surrendering. And after the issue with the kids, surrendering. Surrender is a choice, and it's an ongoing choice, and it's a constant choice that results in obedience. You know, in Isaiah 30, this is one of my go-to passages, and it has been for years. God is, he's compelling the nation of Israel to rest. He's saying, look, there's trouble on the horizon, and the nation of Israel wants to run off to Egypt. They're going to manage, they're going to cope, they're going to do what they need to do to grow in the suffering that they're dealing with. So they're going to go get their, in our context, we're going to go get our self-help books. We're going to change our mentality. We're going to get the right nutrition plan. We're going to, we're going to do it, right? And God's saying, wait, 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 wait. Don't go running off to Egypt. And then uh, he, the prophet says these words, in quietness and trust will be your strength. In repentance and rest will be your salvation. Now, if the Israelites would have heard those words and said, Ah, okay. Father says, in quietness and trust, we'll be strong. We'll grow in quietness and trust. We'll find joy and happiness in quietness and trust. We won't only cope. We'll actually live in quietness and trust. And in repentance and rest, we're going to turn from our self-awareness. We're going to turn from our striving and get off the hamster wheel. And we're going to rest. That is where, if they would have listened to that, God would have done these miraculous things for them. But the text goes on right after that admonition and ominously says, but you would not. And so they ran off and God let them run off. And then later in the chapter, there's this beautiful poem where essentially the poet Isaiah prophesies over the people and says, God is just waiting for you to wear yourself out. He's like on tiptoes. He wants to pour into you. And so he's going to let you run off, but he's waiting to be compassionate to you. And when you finally get worn out on the hamster wheels of all these different mentalities and you surrender and you learn to obey, there is where you will hear your teacher behind you a voice behind you saying to the right, to the left. Truly our master, our king, and our savior, Jesus, he exemplified this choice to surrender to the Father even when it didn't make sense, even when it seemed to bring greater suffering. So the night before he was crucified, he's praying in agony. He does not want to go through the pain of the cross. He doesn't want to go through whatever that spiritual experience was for him, which was so much more painful than even the physical pain of the cross. And he prays, Father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. It is the paramount example of what a human does when they surrender, and the result is obedience, and what it led to was your salvation and my salvation. Loved one, you have to hear this. When we surrender our will to the Father and obey, God works these salvific, world-changing works that we could not do ourselves. That's the hope of this mentality. That in the midst of the confusion and the pain and the struggle, when we stop and we surrender first and then obey, God does these works through us and in us and for our world that we could have never done ourselves. And so there you have it, friends. It's this day-to-day, moment-by-moment, surrender and obey. Trust and obey. Partnering with God. Yielding 
to our good Father who wants us to flourish, who wants us to thrive. He's not dangling a a carrot before us, having us chase him on some hamster wheel, but he's inviting us into this life of flourishing and hope. And really, it's our prayer for you guys that through the day-to-day ups and downs, highs and lows, you guys can come to this place of partnering with him, yielding to him, and serving him all the days of your life. God bless you guys. Shalom. Shalom, friends.